One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, Poppy Damon here, executive producer of Stories of Our Times, Today's episode is presented by one of our producers, Asia Fuchs. This week marks five years since Britain voted to leave the European Union. Today, we go back to the heart of Brexit land in Boston, Lincolnshire. Well, at 20 minutes to five, we can now say the decision taken in 1975 by this country to join the common market has been reversed by this referendum. The British people have spoken and the answer is we're out. On the morning of June 24th, 2016, the day after the EU referendum, Iga Pichkowska took the long road to work. I wasn't really thinking much. I just basically didn't want to go anywhere. I didn't want to get to the work, to be honest, because I didn't know what I was going to tell my clients. Iga had moved to Boston from Prudnik, Poland in 2011. For years, she's been running a charity that helps the Polish community and other immigrants living in and around Boston. So she knew her clients, her friends, they'd be turning to her for answers. I knew that people was going to ask me about what, what does it mean for us, what are we going to do now, and things like that. And I really didn't have words to describe what's going to happen because nobody knew. Nobody knew. And to be honest, five years in, and we still don't know anything, I don't feel like I'm fully aware of what's going to happen. So, yeah. so I didn't really want to go to work. I just basically wanted to be on my own with my own thoughts because I was just sad. As simple as that, I was just simply sad. More than 75% of voters in Boston wanted out of the EU. It was the highest leave vote in the country. At the time, Boston was called Brexit land, Farage land. Five years on, did the town get what it wanted? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Asya Fuchs. Today, back to Brexit land. I took the train up to Boston with Zoe Beatty, a freelance writer. She grew up there, but has lived in London for years. Zoe was writing about her hometown, and I was tagging along to make this podcast. We changed at Grantham and took a rickety two-carriage train the rest of the way. Right in that corner there, yeah. So we're coming in by Heckington. I think over there you see those trees, the really straight ones. I think that's right near my best friend's farm. Loads of, like, we just passed a potato factory. I thought if you're arriving into Boston, Boston, your next station call. This is my mum's house. This is the house where you grew up, right? Yeah. Used to be a caravan on the drive though when I was a teenager. 
I sat down with Zoe in her childhood bedroom, in a semi-detached house just east of the town centre. Boston is known for veg, cauliflower, cabbages, sprouts, agriculture, industry, food industry. It's really a, a real hub of production. The surrounding Finland, which is very, very flat, very fertile ground, is also known for very good sausages. I'm very proud of. They are not like you get in the shops, proper linkage sausages. We're known for the stump, which you can see from basically everywhere in the town. The stump, as it's lovingly referred to, is the tower of Boston's 500-year-old parish church. It's a point of local pride. It's massive and can be seen from most places in town. When I was doing research for this trip, Zoe sent me this song her friend Jimmy had written about the town. Unsurprisingly, the stump features prominently. If they don't like your kid, then they'll say no more. Plenty things to do, let you decide yourself. Choose Boston, kid, because there's nowhere else. Stump is in the sky, oh why, oh why would you want to live anywhere else? When the stump is in the sky, oh why, oh why would you want to live anywhere else? Boston is one of those places whose reputation precedes it. It used to be known as the home of the Pilgrim Fathers, those Puritans who went to America in the 1600s. It is the namesake of Boston, Massachusetts, after all. But in the last couple decades, it's been making headlines for all the wrong reasons. In 2006 and 2017, the town was named the fattest in the country. In 2016, it gained infamy as the murder capital of the UK. And as immigration rose, a report by the policy exchange think tank named Boston the least integrated place in England and Wales. It is a highly conflicted little town with lots of contradictions. For Zoe, it's also just home. The way I see it in my mind's eye when I was growing up feels quite light and warm and sort of full of like colour and red brick and now it does feel like there's a, there's a difference, it's a little greyer because of the way that the high street looks with less shops, you know, less vibrancy. Part of what makes Boston Boston is the landscape around it. It's called the Fenland or Fens, flatlands. That's where all those vegetables are grown, all those Brussels sprouts and potatoes. You see it on the train coming in, the land starts to flatten out, the skies widen. The surrounding areas just, for me, I find it really beautiful. A lot of people don't. It isn't like a typical beautiful vista. Of, you know, it's no, no rolling hills, there's no valleys, but it's got its own very distinctive beauty to me. The land is so flat that the horizons, they're called giant skies or big skies in Lincolnshire. When you're sort of walking out in the fens, the land is so flat and the sky is so big that the horizon feels like it starts right at the tips of your toes and it stretches right up above you, over your head, just sort of dwarfs everything below it. These sort of carpeted fields of sprouts and collies and cabbages. Also, you can walk into a field for hours and there's just not, it's just birds and, you know, I used to kind of scream in the fields. <laughs> I was frustrated and just come back. And there's a point just as you drive, the land gets flatter and, and then this sort of the smell hits you and I mean me and my friends we love it like I don't know if it smells like you know fertile veg and land and whatever it is but I and probably it's a little bit pungent I think a lot of people hate it to be honest but that country air like there's sort of hitting you just at one point it's like I'm home (laughs) 
Another thing that happens as you're sort of coming in by train or by car into Lincolnshire that that we noticed on the train over um, was you start seeing a lot of flags, a lot of Lincolnshire flags, a lot of St. George's flags. How do you think like people who have the flags in their gardens, like what are they trying to say? I mean, especially the Lincolnshire flag is a little softer, like it's sort of proud to be from Lincolnshire. And I don't think many people would recognise it, you know, the blue and the green and the red cross in the middle of it. But I think some of it does feel like this is English. This is marking my ground. A lot of residents in Boston that I've spoken to, they have this idea that the idea of being local doesn't exist anymore. And that's what they're trying to counter by putting these flags up, by saying, we are local, we are here. After the EU accession laws of 2004, migrant workers started to come to Britain. Many headed to the fence around Boston. By 2016, almost one in five people in Boston was an immigrant who had arrived in the past decade. So Ego, who we heard from at the start of the episode, works with a lot of these immigrants. Zoe took me to meet her at her office on West Street, the hub of the Eastern European migrant community. Russian, Polish, Lithuanian shop fronts everywhere. For Ego, Brexit was personal. It was a very emotional day, to be honest. Myself and my colleague Patty, my best friend, really, we've been working together. At the time, there was that weird feeling of that couldn't happen, right? We both had a really good cry about it because what it make us feel is unwelcomed. That, that's how we felt. I know that many people had the different reasons to vote as they did. Like my father-in-law, my father-in-law voted out. It was shocking and it was hurting and it was really, really, really frustrating for me because I thought, you know what? He says that he loves me, and then he's saying, I want to vote out. We don't want to be in European Union. So obviously he is a, I don't know, hidden racist or something. Um, So that caused us a lot of hurt and a lot of anger and frustration because obviously that couldn't be right. Nobody believed that that's going to happen, especially here in Boston, because what we've been thinking is, if we would go, who would work those fields? Who would, who would work on those factories? The weeks that followed the referendum were tough. People have been basically disappointed because they thought that if the referendum is won by leave, many people basically thought that we're going to just simply disappear overnight. And that didn't happen. And so when that didn't happen, people have been disappointed because that's what they've been promised. They've been promised that we're going to disappear and they're going to have their lives back and their towns back and everything. So, yeah, there was quite a few things we we heard and, like, why are you still here? We voted. Now you should leave. Would people say that to your face? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People would say that to our face. It's lovely, isn't it? <laughs> Just kind of on, on the street? I or? had that shouted from the window. Somebody basically opened a window and shouted, why are you still here? When you have Polish Bakery on West Street, opposite, on the first floor, there there was a sign as well, like, just go. <laughs> what did they say? Saying, vote, leave, uh, British for British, and things like that. If you don't like it, go back to your own country, things like that. It, it's basic racial abuse, so... I asked Zoe to take me back to the Boston of her childhood, 
though a lot has changed in some ways, some surprising things have stayed the same. I think I was lucky. I think I was really lucky. When I was younger, sort of, you know, 11, 12, me and my best friend would go and climb hay bales and mess around in the fields all day. There was always that, again, that generational anthem thing of there's nothing to do here, there's nothing to do here. And so we just had parties and we did that classic kind of noughties teenager thing of like drinking in the park or like getting the train to Skeggy and drinking beers on the beach. But I see all of that time with my friends as just such a... I don't know, it was just such a fun time. We were aware of violence in the town a little bit. Like, there was always this kind of air of, don't look at someone... In fact, I have spoke to someone for this feature who said even in the 60s that her parents would say, don't look at anyone the wrong way because they'll lump you. And I got told the same thing. And it is this thing of, like, someone would say, are you looking at me? Uh, and you'd be like, no. <laughs> and just, like, make a run for it. I saw fights loads. You've been in fights? Been in fights, yeah. There's fights at school, like arranged fights, like school gates fights. Meet you at 3pm, like yeah, in the car park exactly, kind of thing. yeah. When I was growing up, you know, the enemy was always English people, but from, I don't know, like certain areas of town, like that would be the fear, don't go down Fenside, don't go down here, like because that's where you'll, you'll be in danger. Now apparently that's the Polish quarters. I mean, you've walked down now, it's not scary, is it? No, it's fine. Yeah. I can read the signs, the, the Russian signs. So let's talk about when, when things in the town really started to change, right? I think 2004 was a big kind of inflection point for, for the UK, for the EU, and, and for Boston. What happened? Everything was changing. It felt like change was really inevitable that year. That was the first I saw of any racially motivated violence. I remember coming home and eating my tea in front of the telly with my mum and Boston's on the news. That summer, when England lost to France during the Euros, the town was set on fire by rioting Bostonians. And two weeks later, when England was knocked out of the tournament by Portugal in the quarterfinals, a Portuguese pub was besieged and its windows were smashed. It all stemmed from this rumor that the police and the council had colluded to ban the St. George flag during the tournament. The police later found the rumor was wrongfully spread by the BNP. Following the riot, 16 people were charged with various offenses, two of them with racially motivated crimes. It's thought to be the first riot in the country on this scale aimed at migrant workers. And I remember sort of going into school and girls being like, oh yeah, my uncle's on the run from the police we were like what's going on like I remember thinking this is like you know scary and I'm just ashamed of it you know I'm ashamed of these people who think it's okay to destroy my town it was English men destroying it and it was racially motivated against there was a growing Portuguese population in the town there was very few like Polish people come over to work as well and it was already those little cries of they're coming over here taking our jobs and there was this sense in Boston growing up that if you're not from here if you're not Boston born and bred then you're not really welcome even if you're from a neighboring town yeah yeah Yeah, so so if you're from Poland it's a lot further than Skegness yeah Yeah. so silly 2004 was also the year of the EU accession laws that meant that quite a few Eastern European countries joined the EU what did that mean for Boston? Yeah, Boston 
then became more open to seasonal workers. Seasonal workers have always been a part of Boston's landscape. There are so many fields, there's so much produce that it's a necessity that people come to help out with all of the work. In practice, I think that employees then started directly recruiting from countries in Eastern Europe. People that were already working in Boston were requested to go back, paid by their employer to like Poland or another neighbouring country. And they were put up in a flat paid for by their current employer in Lincolnshire to recruit other workers to come over. The following 10 years then saw this huge increase. I think the that sort of section of the of Boston's demographic increased by something like 460%. So in a small town, it did feel like a significant change. So there was a 460% increase of immigrants from Eastern Europe? Yeah. Who were sort of brought in to, to work the land yeah. and work the fields? But they're also then living in Boston and using services. Obviously, they need a safe, comfortable place to live. The infrastructure in the town wasn't ready for that because of a lack of investment, a lack of care, really. What role do immigrants play in this community? A very necessary role. Someone was telling me that they know someone who works in Boots and they said that Boots wouldn't be open if it wasn't for the migrant population because they spend lots on perfumes and things like that, makeup and not only The Boots that. is huge. I was there yeah, this morning. It's, it's a, a really big Boots. It's a nice Boots. I was right? expecting like a, the mini. <laughs> I felt proud of all these small things. But also they, they produce all of this food for the rest of the country. That wider economy, the thing that Boston thrives on has always provided something like... I think, actually, I couldn't find up-to-date stats, but there was one I read from even 2011. It provides something like 27% of the country's entire food production in terms of veg and other kind of farming. And That's huge. Yeah, it is. It's really significant. And that work wouldn't be done, and we'd be left with leftover crops. They wouldn't be able to keep this industry going without the people that come over and either do seasonal work or come over and live here, factory work, you know, no one wants to do it. it it's very significant, very necessary. It's just that things like housing wasn't ready, things like doctor surgeries, things like hospitals, and of course, schools. The effects of the sudden population growth without sufficient investment or management, strained healthcare, education, and housing infrastructure... But the native English residents of Boston weren't the only ones who felt betrayed or misled. Iga tells us her clients felt much of the same. Many people feel just simply cheated, right? Because they've been promised, okay, come here, you're going to be happy, you're going to have a house, you're going to have this, that, and the, and the other work is waiting for you. And Sort so of promised many, by recruiters. Yes, yes. And many of those people came here They've been located in caravans, um, being paid for that caravan 70 or even 100 pounds a week <laughs> just to live in a really terrible conditions without heating and things like that. And that's being deducted from the wages. But the thing is, if you're coming from, let's say, Poland or Bulgaria or anywhere else and you've been promised that you're going to have work, you're going to have place, your children are going to be having schools and basic healthcare and things like that, and you're coming to Boston and you're finding out that you're living in a caravan with five others, your child will not have a place in school because Boston doesn't have enough school places. And if you want to have a medical care, if you want to find a dentist for NHS, it's basically impossible in here. Then you're a little bit disappointed, aren't you? I was. 
In a moment, we'll hear from one of those 75% of Boston residents who supported Brexit. But first, a message from my colleague. Hello, I'm Jane Mulkerens, Associate Editor of The Times magazine. By listening in, you make it possible for me to bring you exclusive stories that you won't get anywhere else. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Do you want to come to I've, I've, I've only one, but I have got... I'm driving, I've already had pints, so I can't. After an awful lot of consideration, I did vote to leave. Jerry Rothy is 61 and has lived in Boston for nearly a decade. We spoke to him at his house, just a two-minute walk from the stump. Obviously, it hasn't worked out quite as well and quite as quickly as perhaps we'd have hoped. But it is what it is, and I don't regret voting to come out. When you did vote to leave... What were the sort of benefits that you saw leaving the EU would potentially bring to Boston? How did you see Boston fitting into this picture? Mm. So being specific to Boston, there is a problem with immigration in Boston. There is. If you go back 10, 15 years, when there was a real influx of Polish people coming over, mainly Polish and obviously other countries too, they were coming as family-orientated people to work hard, build a better life for themselves. And they did work hard. You know, I witnessed all that firsthand. So you can't blame them for wanting to build a better life. And that was fine by me. What we were starting to get by, certainly by the time of the referendum, was an influx of people that, how can I say it? They simply don't want to work. And we were getting people that were coming over not to work the fields, not to work the factories, not to be doctors or nurses or anything else. They were coming over literally to take advantage. And Boston was an epicentre of that. So if we could stop that in some way by the leave vote, then that worked because it was destroying the town and it still is. In what way do you mean take advantage If you go into the market square, for example, now, the market square of any town, village, city, should be 
uh, a place of enjoyment, uh, recreation, of shopping, of good vibes in the summer, sitting outside the cafes. Now, it is like that still, but there is an element of gangs of young lads and they could be from the UK as well, but they are predominantly not from the UK. And they're hanging around the corner of town. They're intimidating, particularly older people, the more frail amongst us. Yes, it's a small minority and lots of the migrants work really, really hard. But a lot of them, a significant minority, are not there to work. They're there to come over, take advantage of a welfare system, a housing system, and milk it for all it's got worth. Just to play devil's advocate slightly, is there any evidence that those sorts of people are taking benefits or aren't working night shifts, for instance? Or I'm just also, there's just this sort of sense of when I was at school, it was the same, but it was just English people. I yeah. don't know if you remember and it that. It still is. Yeah. Without a doubt. Do, yeah. Do you think that there is sort of, has anyone sort of looked at the stats of, I don't think there is many benefit claimants that much disproportionately in Boston. I think you have a very good point there and I don't have those stats and I suppose that's just hearsay as as such. Certainly there doesn't, amongst certain groups, there certainly doesn't seem to be an ethic of let's get out to work. There doesn't seem to be an ethic of family because a lot of them are relatively young in their 20s, 30s, single guys. Yes, they may have wives, partners at home, But generally, it is a similar crowd that hangs around certain streets and the market square of Boston. There's always been, in any town or city, there's always been the hard guys, the the, the ones that will go around in gangs, whether they're English, European, American, Russian or whatever. That's always been the, 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 the case. But certainly that's increased, by my witness, that's increased over the past five years, perhaps. Yeah. The thing is, Jerry's not alone. This was a common refrain heard on the evening news when Boston briefly swept the headlines at the time of the referendum. When people say, oh, right, um, we're the most segregated town in the country, yeah? Right, what happens is you get your neighbours. All the housing is full, and it is full of EU migrant workers. They come over here, they live in um, houses of multiple occupation. They're in... Um, they work in the same place. Some of them have been here four or five years, can't even say hello in English. I think the community has lost its Lincolnshireness. What's the driving force for you for this out? Um, well, it, one is immigration and the other just to take back our own country. No, I don't mind immigration as long as it's as long as it's um, organised. I don't want people just. We don't want people just flooding in. Did you come up to visit sort of around the time of the referendum, maybe right before the vote? What do you remember from what the atmosphere in the town was like? Yeah, I did. I remember taking a picture on my phone of um, UKIP, a walk-in clinic, I think, in the town centre. Obviously, all over the country, everyone was talking about it. Like, more so here, people were talking about it. I remember hearing things in the pub all the time, like people saying they're coming over here, taking our jobs, they're coming over here and just claiming benefits and drinking all day. And I was thinking, which one is it then? Some people I spoke to said that they wanted to vote Remain, and they did, but they weren't able to speak about it at the time at all because as soon as they said they would vote Remain, they were shut down, shouted at. But yeah, they said that as soon as, you know, say if they put it on a Facebook group or something like that, they would be heavily inundated with aggressive messages. And it became this real kind of 
caricature of a demon <laughs> in the town. It's split it into. Again, I remember seeing flags quite a lot and the connotations of those felt very, you know, they were unambiguous at that point to me. I do remember seeing, you know, signs saying go home, things like that. There was that first massive wave right after the referendum where people been basically, okay, we are done. If you don't want us here, we're going. Uh, and there was, it was a big wave. Then you have that time when you realize that not many people are coming here anymore. When I established my business, the main thing we've been doing, been establishing new people coming in. So you're coming in, we're going to help you get to the doctors, we're going to help you open bank account, get insurance number, find a job and things like that. But at the moment, our main business is people going away. So closing accounts, closing your records, your phone bills, your internet, getting your taxes sorted, your pensions, <laughs> so they can leave and never come back, basically. Sad. So it's been five years since the EU referendum. How has the town changed in five years? What have you noticed? You can see the effects of austerity more, of a depleting high street. Probably the last 10 years, I'd say, European supermarkets are like very big and prominent. So that just, it looks visually, it looks Like Eastern European different. supermarkets? Yeah, yeah. Karzienka. Yeah. yeah, exactly. What she said, what does it mean in Russian? Basket. It means basket, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's also a Polish word or something. Yeah, sort of inevitably, all, all towns, they will go through generational change. They will go through political change. And Boston's is quite obvious to see. It's funny to sort of look back and because actually everyone I speak to wants to look back. It feels like sometimes it's embedded in the past. Everyone you speak to says, it's not like it used to be. It's, it's not like it used to be back in my day. And it, it's it's such a classic line from any small town. Everyone thinks their version of their town is going to be the most profitable, the most jubilant. It was completely different. There was none of this crime. There's, there was, you know, but we like to sort of be yeah, romantic. Yeah, we watched, um, you sent me a documentary from, you know, 2000, all about how crime riddled Boston is. There's an old BBC documentary about how much crime there is on the streets of Boston. Yeah, and that was before any of, any of this sort of, what's now been focused on is, is immigration and, and the demographic of the town. Actually, th this, this crime has always been there. Here's a clip from that old documentary. It's what Boston sounded like in the year 2000. The kids, uh, they go around in gangs in the main places near the nightclubs and the marketplace. Uh, and with it being such a small town, everybody knows everybody. And if there's a fight picked one week, then they're going back to start it again the next week. So, yeah, it might seem idyllic, but um, unfortunately, everybody knows each other and they still bump into each other every week. It was a rainy Wednesday in mid-May. Zoe and I walked around the town centre. She showed me the sights. We walked past the closed-down Marks and Spencers and the closed-down Aldritz, the department store where Zoe used to work when she was a teenager. We walked through the market. Wednesdays and Saturdays are market days, but we're a little late and the vendors were just packing up their stalls. Yeah, that closed-down as well, that was Marks and Spencers over there. A couple of people I spoke to had stalls for sort of 16, 17 years and had to shut it down because there's just not enough, there's not enough business. Do you think, is Boston sort of an anomaly or does it say something bigger about, about this country? I think a bit of both. In some ways, I feel like the town has been left to fend for itself. 
it's quite exemplary in terms of showing the effects of austerity and of what happens when you don't look after systems that are in place in town. The town becomes vulnerable and then the people become fearful because they feel unsafe suddenly. I think it's a very good example of how political agendas, especially ones like the Brexit campaign, create that like deep line of division and turn towns against each other because then they're not looking at what's at the top. The benefits of Brexit will not be seen in Boston. All it will do is stunt the amount of workers that are able to come over here. It will affect the one really, really important economy in agriculture and farming. This whipping up of fear. This was called Farage Land for a reason. This was a target. There was a vulnerability there that, uh, to me, was just weaponized. And I'm not saying that people didn't know what they were doing. I'm not saying people weren't informed. But I also think that there was an imbalance in the way that politicians spoke about this issue. And there's a responsibility there that hasn't been taken. It's definitely one of it's a one-off because it's it is so specific that it's a small town with such a specific change and such a specific landscape. But it's also one example of many, many places like this in, in the UK. It's just another small town that isn't, isn't getting the care it needs. So are you hopeful for the future of this town? To speak to people who are actively taking a part in, in really improving Boston, to hear of all the initiatives that are going on. I, I was really wa- like warm to see the, the husk of Marks and Spencers. Like, it looks horrible in the town. And when I came back at Christmas, there was signs in the window. They were doing a book exchange. Maybe it's just that I saw the heart of it again, that I loved, that I thought was such an important part of 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 this town this like really like warm community that became just really early on something that was so comforting so hopeful it's something that feels truly representative of my home you've been listening to stories of our times with me asya fuchs and my guest freelance writer for the sunday times magazine zoe Beattie. You can read her story about going back to Boston in this week's Sunday Times Magazine. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Vulcan Kitzeltuk. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, you can send us an email by writing to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. <laughs>